Smartcast. With the Baker's Plus Card, it's easy to get lower than low prices for the win. Earn fuel points on every purchase and save up to a dollar a gallon at the pump. The Baker's Plus Card. All you do is win. Big, big savings. Sign up now at bakersplus.com and start saving. Bakers, fresh for everyone. Savings may vary by state. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your favorites with the buy five or more, save a dollar each sale. Simply buy five or more participating items and save a dollar each with your card. Bakers, fresh for everyone. Hello and welcome to the Social Psychic Radio Show featuring Jason Zuck. Jason has been an intuitive psychic medium since 2004. This show will cover a variety of topics relating to spirituality, mediumship, self-improvement, and intuitive guidance. Whatever interests you, remember that we are all here to share and learn. Sit back and get ready to socialize with the social psychic. Hello and welcome to the Social Psychic Radio Show. This is Jason Zook. It's with great pleasure that I have the opportunity of having as a special guest today, Thomas Hatsis. Thomas has written a book called Psychedelic Mystery Traditions, Spirit Plants, Magical Practices, and Ecstatic States. The purpose of our interview is to review the role that psychedelics have played in religious and cultural practices throughout history and Western civilization. There's a certain power endued in these substances and, and natural plants and elements, and I'm excited to have Thomas go through his findings regarding psychedelics and entheogens, tracing back to prehistoric expressions of human creativity, continuing through antiquity, the Renaissance period, Victorian era, and beyond. Thomas is a historian of psychedelia, witchcraft, magic, pagan religions, alternative Christianities, and the cultural intersection of those areas. Holds a degree in history from Queens College. He's the author of The Witch's Ointment and runs PsychedelicWitch.com, a site dedicated to promoting the latest and best information pertaining to the psychedelic renaissance. He currently lives in Portland, Oregon. Welcome to the show, Thomas. Thank you for having me, Jason. It's great to be here. Thank you. I want to ask you first about your website, PsychedelicWitch.com. Can you tell us a little about that? Uh, sure. Psychedelicwitch.com is just a little hub uh, for my ideas. Um, there are some videos on there. There are some articles. And all three of my books are available through the website. Uh, it's also a great place to get in touch with me if you want to yell at me about something. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, you know, like any other website, uh, except, you know, witchy is, uh, oh, wait, I probably can't say the F word, witchy AF. Okay. Okay. <laughs> At what point in your life did you start identifying with this subject matter, psychedelic stuff and, and paganism, witchcraft? That type sure, of stuff? sure. Uh, I mean, I really separate a lot of it in the sense that I had um, – there are some people that just always felt like they were kind of oddballs or whatever growing up. And uh, for me, I, I mean, I guess where the, uh, the witchiness intersects with the psychedelia was that after my first mushroom trip at around the age of 18, um, the first thing I like, I still remember to this day, you know, coming back from that experience and saying to myself, oh, you're not weird. You're just a witch. Like, that's all that was. Like, I just didn't have um, really the words to define it or um, really uh, I didn't feel empowered enough to yet really express that openly because it's an odd thing to tell people. And um, so I would say, yeah, going back to uh, my late teens when I had my first um, uh, mushroom trip at 18 and uh, my friends and I were microdosing mushrooms at around 19, 20, 21. I wrote a lot of songs. I was in bands and uh, wrote a lot of songs that dealt with the psychedelic experience. Um, one band in particular called It Is The Isn't. Every single song we wrote was about the psychedelic experience. So um I would say around there, and it was more of um, not so much discovering anything as, as it was coming to terms with, uh, with what was already there. And, you know, kind of uh, uh, then moving forward with that as kind of the forefront and kind of uh, carrying that, that freak flag and letting it fly a little bit more proudly. I feel like everyone has some elements of that in their, in, within themselves. And I yeah. think it's great to be able to express that in our current society and not worry about negative ramifications. 
Yeah, of course. And that's one of the things that a lot of these psychedelics groups uh, that are out there are really uh, important for is giving people that space to um, explore trauma for one, but mostly to explore healing and to uh, connect with those who are trying to heal in similar ways or even people trying to heal in different ways. There's still, you know, there's that strength in the unity. And um, uh, it's good that we, we're seeing more and more of these psychedelics groups uh, uh, springing up and more books about the psychedelic experience springing up. I know it's not the topic of our conversation, but I wrote another book called Microdosing Magic, a psychedelic spell book, which is all about my witchy and magical and wild and weird, you know, uh, uh, magical traditions and potions and things that I do. So, How long have you been doing the uh, magic stuff? So the first, <laughs> the first actual spell I ever tried to cast, I was about 15 years old, and it was done under duress. My uh, my older brother didn't want to go to school the next day. It was like I, I don't remember what day it was, but for for argument's sake, let's say it was a Wednesday, and I guess he either had a test on Thursday or a book report due, or just something. He didn't want to have to go to school the next day, so he pretty much kind of grabbed me and said, "You're one of those people that can make it snow, so I need you to make it snow, so I don't have to go to school tomorrow." So I went outside. And I got some dead grass from my front lawn to like represent like the death of the season or whatever. And I went inside and I, I boiled a pot of water on the stove and I just threw the dead grass <laughs> into this boiling pot of water and started meditating on trying to make it snow and focusing my energy trying to make it snow. And it didn't work at all. Um, but it was that was it was just funny because my older brother recognized that in me before I was even really out and about with it. Like he just was like, okay. Okay, my brother's one of those weird people that is into this stuff. So, yeah, that was I was about 15 years old at the time. Okay, I have a close friend of mine who took salvia once, sure, and she describes a near death experience from it basically through her her own. Ex she's very intuitive, and she sure. said that she crossed through to the other side, and that they were telling her she needs to come back here. And she described it's like incredible experience that enlightened her and has really changed her perspective on life. I want to ask you, based on your experiences studying this topic, do you see that as a usual occurrence with people that indulge? To say that it's changed their lives, it transforms how they look at the world, their paradigm, so to speak, it shifts how they view things? Yeah, I mean, I haven't yet met a single person who hasn't said that, and I talk to a lot of people about this. Um, like, I, I guess, uh, I so, I, I wow. <laughs> Hopefully you could edit that in post pro. I haven't um I haven't actually encountered anybody that's taken like a strong dose of mushrooms or LSD and been like, meh, it was okay. Like th that I haven't had. As far as crossing over to the other side, um it it's interesting because I feel like there are different realms you can go to. And I I'm I'm guessing your friend when uh, uh was referring to the other side like death. Right. The yeah. Other side of life being sure. Um, I've gotten there, but not with salvia. I've gotten there with henbane and mandrake. Uh, but the more interesting places that I've gone had to do with um, with a five meo DMT and kind of taking a, a hit of this five meo DMT and then waking up, you know, standing outside of the universe itself. And like looking in on it. And it's like that to me was is a very different place than like death or the afterlife. Um, but what I would be most interested to see, and I've asked actually Ben Sessa, who's a, 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 um, a psychologist, a psychiatrist, excuse me, over in, um, in London who works with MDMA. And, and uh, I said, you know, at, at his conference breaking convention uh, last year, I asked him, you know, we always hear these stories, you know, of people taking a, a psychedelic and having this, you know, profound spiritual experience. Right. Of course. Well, do you know of a single case of a spiritual person taking a high dose of psilocybin mushrooms and coming back and saying, oh, now I'm an atheist? I have not heard and that. Me neither. And I think that that's a pretty important question. And I I think that that would be uh, a, a more accurate measure than the multitude of people coming back saying, wow, that was so profound. And, you know, I was surfing the cosmos and all that, and uh, which is definitely going to happen. But, yeah, I'd be more interested to hear if people actually are spiritual and determine that they're no longer spiritual after having an entheogenic experience. Well, and that's what I want to ask you. What is the difference between the entheogen, sorry, and hallucinogen? So I just use I should I should uh, clarify I just use uh, the word entheogen as a noun and I normally don't I usually okay. use it as an adjective to de describe a psychedelic 
psychedelic experience. Um, as far as uh, the term hallucinogens, it's kind of a passe term these days because people are discovering more and more that um, what they're seeing might not be, th these are not hallucinations. Uh, I think that um, what was a big paradigm changer in that was Rick Strassman's book, DMT, The Spirit Molecule, if uh, okay. some of your audience will probably be familiar with that. And uh, he said the most amazing thing about this, and I, I could testify to this as someone who's taken 5-MeO-DMT, uh, you know, the, the beings that you meet in that other world and the space that you're in that other world is quite real. And especially if you've taken something like LSD or mushrooms, I mean, I came back from my 5-MeO-DMT experience. I was like, that was nothing like mushrooms at all. That was not LSD. That was, I was in another dimension. And the um, the others who have met, you know, these interdimensional beings while under 5-MeO-DMT, you know, they've all come back and said, you know, the conversation I was having with, with these entities was as real as the conversation I'm having with you, excuse me, conversation I'm having with you. And, uh, you know, that is kind of difficult to really wrap your mind around that until you start meeting those entities and having those conversations with them. Sure, sure. I, I want to get into your book. And I, I just background questions. I'm just interested in this. Um, sure. One last background question. Based on sure. your topic, have you had any blowback critical from society, from people around you in your life? Just I think this is an incredibly intriguing topic. Has there been anyone that you've met resistance in terms of pursuing this as uh, a book and going forward with presenting your viewpoints in it? Absolutely. Um, and, and that's fine. They're all wrong. And, and uh, no big deal. The community that um, are under the uh, erroneous assumption that there is no psychedelic history to witchcraft and or magic. Uh, in fact, just uh, recently, a, um, uh, somebody who is a reader of my books uh, posted my book, Microdosing Magic, a Psychedelic Spell book onto this uh facebook um uh, i don't remember the group it was it was some like you know witch or wiccan group or something and um the the moderator of the group said you know this is you know he was nice about it but was like yeah there's actually no truth to you know the history of psychedelics in in religion well religion uh, spirituality magic witchcraft anything like that and so, I mean, the truth of the matter is, I mean, when you go back and look through the sources, I mean, there are tons and tons and tons of, um, of uh, sources. And I mean, I, I cite them all in, uh, in The Witch's Ointment, uh, especially uh, my first book. I mean, I have all the original translations from all the original documents, court dossiers, demonology texts, everything. So, I mean, if people, you know, that you have that blowback. Um, I'm not sure what it's all about, though. Um, I was going to tell you, I think there's always going to be critical blowback to anything that's outside the norms in terms of society's mainstream. But I also think that this is, makes it exploring this sure. makes society better because it lets people have an open mind. Oh. And I think it can enlighten people. If it, you know, uh, under I the right circumstances, you know, I agree. I mean, it really comes down to the audience, uh, to be honest, because I, I largely have two audiences. Uh, one is the psychedelic community and the other is the neo-pagan Wiccan community. Now, what happens now, the psychedelic community, obviously, you know, they're very you know, these are very, very enlightened seekers. And I mean, read stuff like crazy. So I'm mostly not telling, you know, the psychonauts anything they don't already know. I might be showing them, you know, different ways that people are using. And I try to do that in the book. Uh, but most of them, you know, would, would agree. I mean, they've seen the cave art, they've seen the paintings, uh, you know, they've seen the fragments of texts and, you know, the inscriptions and stuff. So they know that there's a history there. Whereas with the neo-pagan and Wiccan community, um, one of the setbacks is that the two biggest publishers of uh, neo-pagan and Wiccan books, which are Lewin and Weiser, they refuse to touch anything that has to do with psychedelics. So in a sense, they're kind of putting out this erroneous paradigm to all their readers simply by leaving the psychedelic story. I don't know the lady's name, but I was on a, a radio show and there was one of these neo-Wiccan authors, Dark Star or some kind of, you know, nature, witchy name or whatever. And the interviewer said, oh, this person doesn't think there's anything, you know, to psychedelics and witchcraft. And uh, I said, well, you know, this person doesn't know really what she's talking about then and obviously hasn't read the history, probably doesn't speak any language or research other than so can't actually check the sources. So, you know, I don't really care what that person thinks. And so she said to me, well, I'm having her on right after you. And so she's listening to this right now. Do you have anything you want to say? And I said, 
uh, yes, and again, I don't remember her name, you don't know anything about historical witchcraft. And uh, that actually caused a bit of a problem because she's like this very, you know, predominant name. Truth is, I, I don't care about your, your credentials. What I care about is if you're accurate, and she just wasn't being accurate. Interesting. We cut out a little bit, so I'm trying to get a better connection. I apologize. Sometimes Skype's a little iffy, but... You know, no worries. For audience purposes, we're doing this interview sure. for Skype for our listeners. So if it cuts out a little bit, I apologize to our audience. We'll edit the best we can. Um, I want to get into your book. Sorry, guys. <laughs> no worries. No worries. Sure. I want to get into your book. I want to talk about, I know you had two prior books. What motivated you to write this particular book? So this uh, psychedelic mystery traditions is largely the excess of materials that didn't make it into my first book, The Witch's Ointment. And I just realized that I had enough there for about half or a little more than half of a book. And I had been um, working on some other chapters that deal with the, uh, the psychedelic history of Christianity. And so I pretty much just inserted those chapters, the uh, the psychedelic Christianity chapters, into uh, you know the, the excess stuff that didn't make it into the witch's ointment, and like there it is. And uh, then you have uh, psychedelic mystery traditions. So okay. it was just they, what, what it was was there was just there was so much there. There was so much evidence. There were so many. Uh, there was just so much to go on, uh, especially with the ancient Greek and Roman sources and Egyptian sources as well. And I was like, and then um, uh, it, with the ceremonial magicians of the uh, the Middle Ages, which uh, the uh, great cannabis historian Chris Bennett also just released a book called Libra 420, which is the definitive volume on that topic. There was just too much there that I couldn't ignore it. So I put it together in a book and uh, my publisher was interested in it. So here we are. Can you tell us a little about the earliest prehistoric expressions of human creativity due to psychedelics? Sure, sure. I'd love to. Um, <laughs> most of it actually comes from cave art. Uh, there are some caves in Spain that show some clear uh, depictions of mushrooms that these people were obviously, you know, we don't know what they were doing with them, but they certainly were revering them in some way. And I, I mean, it, it doesn't take too much of a leap of faith to assume that they were they were venerating these mushrooms because of their, you know, psychic effects. Uh, there's also the uh, probably the most famous piece of evidence uh, is the uh, Tassili caves in eastern Algeria, where there's, again, what, what uh, uh, scholars have called the bee shaman. We don't really know if it was supposed to be a bee or not. Uh, but this fellow appears on the cover of my book, actually, and he's clearly holding, you know, bunches of mushrooms in his hands, um, or she, for that matter, because it could have been a woman shaman as well. Uh, there are also then um, mushroom statues uh, from um, the first world, uh, especially uh, Mesoamerica, and also poppy goddess statues from Crete and all over the Mediterranean. And then you have, I mean, the oldest uh, medical text, the Ebers Papyrus, uh, also mentions these kinds of medicines, especially things like opium and mandrake, um, for their healing potential. Then you have all of the, uh, the, the references to cannabis, um, or, or I should say the, uh, the mistranslation of cannabis as calamus in the Old Testament. Uh, the original word in cannabosum um, is actually is cannabis. Uh, one, of the, one of the great things about cannabis and searching for cannabis in the ancient world and medieval world is that in most places, the word retains a, a, the similar sound. So you're not going to find cannabis called something like Bluschwitz. It's always canna something or canna, cannabis, cannabosum, cannabis, cannabu. So it's very easy to trace in the ancient world. In fact, the Assyrian word uh, cannabu, from which we get cannabis, is actually their, their verb meaning to make smoke. So we know that they were burning cannabis, or else why would they <laughs> name their verb to produce smoke after the very plant that they were smoking? That's interesting. I know, and, and I think this is... You bring up cannabis as such a relevant topic in our society right now with states moving to legalize marijuana recreationally and medicinal marijuana as one oh, yeah. of the things. And you're, you're, you're pointing to ancient times saying the Assyrians used it back then. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. You know, that's interesting. I'm, and thinking of our relationship to nature with plants and that plants can provide these type of experiences for people to really, yeah, yeah. you know, medicinal issue, you know, medicinal help, but then also spiritual development. And yes. I feel like um, clarity for some people who may not have it otherwise. Absolutely. Yeah. And we, I mean, we have monolithic pipes that still have cannabis resin caked into the sides of them. I mean, well, excavators uh, also dug up the, the soma vats of 
the Vedics and again, scraped the sides and found they tested positive for opium, cannabis, and ephedra. So there's just a few more examples to the, the timeless use of things like cannabis uh, and, and other uh, spirit plants. I want to note it. I just want to know for our audience, I get to see you on Skype right now. You have this nice large mushroom in the background. I see that. It's interesting. Oh, yeah. I got <laughs> it's, it's on topic. <laughs> I want to ask you, what do you mean when you say the term psychonaut? Psychonaut. Uh, any explorer of inner space. I believe, I don't remember who actually coined it, but it might have been Timothy Leary. I'm, I'm, I'm blanking on that, though. It was coined in the 60s. Um, and it's just, yeah, any, any explorer of inner space. I prefer psychonaut instead of psychonaut um, for the same reason that uh, Humphrey Osmond wanted to change the term from metomedic to psychedelic. For it's just, um, it just gives a, a more um, precise and more accurate definition. Okay. Uh, by having that a psychonaut instead of a psychonaut. Gotcha. Tell us a little about the first mystery that you mentioned in, in your book. Can you describe that to our audience? And what you mean Absolutely. by that? Absolutely. Yeah, this is a little rough. Um, so in in our remote past, our, our ancient, ancient, ancient ancestors were developing uh, bicameral minds. And they were starting to see the world and pairing them as opposites up versus down, black versus white, in versus out, whatever. And what happened was this actually started, at least I theorized, that, that it, it presented this fantastic fart in their minds, such as to say that essentially what the first mystery is, if life is so precious, why are we born just to die? What is the point of us actually being here if all, I mean, in, especially in those days, life was nasty, brutish, and short, only to end up in the grave. So the first mystery um, sent, set out to explain that. And I should say that in the ancient world, a mystery is not like a whodunit. A mystery is an explanation as to why things are. Okay. So out of that question, out of that first mystery, uh, were founded the rites of Eleusis, which was, in my opinion, and I, I argue about it in the book, was um, ancient people's way of trying to understand exactly that. Why are we born just to die? And the answer seems to have been that you are part of a continuous cycle of life and that just as the grain is going to die, just as the leaves will fall from the trees, but in spring, it's all going to come back. Well, you are a part of that same cycle, so you will always live on. So it was a way to alleviate the fears of death. That's very interesting. This is the first mystery, understanding of it. And, and tying that into what I know as a, as a medium, I relate to people when I do readings for them that the energy as we pass continues, and that's how I'm able to pick up loved ones who are deceased or that kind of thing. So it fits squarely with what you're describing. I think that's interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I think that there's a lot to be said about that, uh, uh, but we don't have to get into that right now. But, uh, <laughs> sorry. No worries. I want to ask you about... Religious practices, the earliest ones that you've looked at in your book regarding psychedelic substances, what did you find? Sure. It's, it's very difficult to nail down exactly what was going on because we have so little information and we're normally working from fragments. But the earliest one that I found has to do with the rites of Inanna. Inanna is the counterpart to Isis in Egypt and Demeter in Greece. Uh, she is like the original grain mother and also apparently seems to be the original mother of psychoactives. Uh, in my book, I, I examine in Uruk vase. I, I should also say that Uruk was the civilization that predated the Sumerian civilization. That's how far back Inanna goes, like before Sumer. That's how old she is. And um on this, uh, on this vase, it, it seems to be um, indicating this is a death-rebirth story, and um, Inanna has to die. She goes into the underworld where she meets her sister, Erekigala, and is uh, actually slain by Erekigala and uh, hanged on a, on, a, on a hook for a, a number of days, for three days. And then two of her servants come, and they pass through the seven gates of the underworld, and they save her and revive her. And what happens is on this vase, what we're seeing is now Inanna rising from the dead as opium and grain, which were pretty much the two staples at the time. And we also see uh, this, this analog with a, a bust of uh, Demeter rising from the underworld that's also in my book. It's a rather uh, famous picture where she's holding uh, opium poppies, grains, and serpents to signify the underworld. We don't exactly know. Uh, I try to... Um, 
I, I do my best in the book uh, to explain this by calling it a somnotheogenic experience. Somnotheogen is a word I coined meaning to generate divinities in dreams. I base this off the research of the late anthropologist Edward, Edward Tyler, who theorized that the first doorway to another realm for our sleeping ancestors was in the dream realm. So working off that hypothesis, I hypothesize myself that the earliest kinds of psychoactives that would have been sought after were the kinds that knock you into a deep but lucid dream state. Things like opium, again, which we have evidence for, mandrake, which we have evidence for in the Bible itself, and uh, henbane as well. So it seems that um, even before Inanna and in, in, uh, Sumer, uh, before Greece, before all of it, perhaps people were using uh, these substances not just for their euphoric effects, which were absolutely recognized and, and, and applauded, but more so that they could fall into this lucid dream state to meet the goddesses and gods. And uh, we have some evidence for this, especially in Egypt, with uh, people sealing, uh, uh, seeking medical help from ISIS. They would go to the Temple of Isis and drink an opium potion, and that would knock them into the spirit world where they would meet Isis, and she would heal them in their dreams uh, or give them information on how to heal themselves when they got obvious, we're seeing a different form of an opioid medicine, not as a pain reliever, not for euphoric effects, but literally as a gurney to get you into the other world. That's very interesting. And, and when we talk about time period, we're talking 10,000 plus years ago, right? Based oh, on yeah, what your yeah, book yeah. It looks like, it goes back that far. That's before recorded history oh, for yeah. our purposes. Yeah, I mean, it, I would say that, um, it, or I would say that it's right at the cusp of recorded history, like the Tassili Caves, because we have, you know, we have the etchings. But uh, to your point, I believe those practices go back before recorded history. But we do, you know, right? It's so cool because I mean, the earliest expressions of human creativity conclusively show entheogens. <laughs> like, I think that, that that's a major point. Like, all the earliest stuff shows this. And, and, like, unabashedly so. Here's my question, just looking at it from an outside point of view. So historically, 10,000 years ago plus, these were used in religious practices and across society for healing and other things. At what point did they start to become stigmatized by society? So, in my opinion, uh, it would be different places at different times have, like, there wasn't just this, there was never this mass meetup of all the world's elites, you know, to be like, hey, no more doing this. I mean... Um, you know, cannabis in, in this country was tolerated up until what, the 20s and 30s. I mean, you know, like nobody cared. There weren't too many people, you know, smoking it at the time, but nobody was suppressing it. Um, uh, a guy named uh, Paschal Reverly, uh, excuse me, uh, um, Paschal Beverly Randolph, who was a uh, magician living in, um, in uh, uh, America and he went to Europe for a while. I mean, like he was making magic potions and elixirs. I mean, using pounds of cannabis, pounds of opium, pounds of magic, like just so much of this stuff and nobody seemed to care. So it seems that, I mean, what happens is once it becomes a problem, that's when it's you know, subdued by the authority. So even in the ancient world, like the Dionysian cults, I mean, in certain parts of uh, Greece, you know, the Dionysian cult was all the rage. But you go over to Thrace of modern day Turkey, you know, I mean, they were executing the ecstatics of the Dionysian cults. Uh, you have uh, also um, the the, um, the Bacchanalia in Rome in 187 before the common era. I mean, the Senate executed the women of the Bacchanalia. You know, and but they didn't execute other people for using psychedelics in their rights at all. It, did, it, it all depended on what you were doing. So another thing that uh, that's a great question, because we today tend to separate um, um, like uh, psychedelics from the law, like they're here's the law, here's psychedelics in the ancient world. That's not how it worked. They didn't legislate the psychedelic. They legislated practices with them. So magical practices. So if you went to a public ceremony and, um, decided you were going to pass around a blunt or something of cannabis, you know, and you all to worship Zeus, nobody cared. 
That was perfectly acceptable. However, if you were to take that same cannabis and go try to give a reading or give some prophecy for somebody, and let's say in your district in the Roman Empire, that was illegal, well, you were going to find yourself executed. Um, the, the, uh, there's a, a misunderstanding we have today about the, the legal nature of, of witchcraft and magic in the ancient world. I think a lot of uh, people tend to think that witchcraft and magic were legal under pagan Rome, and only you know in the Christian scope became illegal. It's actually the opposite is true. Um, the pagans were far harsher in their penalties against magicians and witches than the Christians ever were. Christians at least gave you the option of converting. You know, and if you didn't, they might imprison you or execute you. Now that's bigoted to be certain, but the pagans, well, they were just going to chop your head off. I can understand that difference. <laughs> yeah. The value, they didn't value people the same way. At least the Christians gave you the chance to convert if you chose to do so, even though it's repressive, where pagans... Yeah, yeah. highly bigoted, but... Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, we have to remember that these are the same societies that would leave children on, you know, the side of Mount Ikaros, you know, in Sparta, you know, and if the kid survived, you know, that, that, that kid was worthy to be a Spartan, you know, like, I agree with you that there was a certain... Um, I don't want to say that they didn't value life, but they certainly didn't value it the way we do today. Uh, not at all. Like, not even close. And they certainly didn't value the lives of strangers the way we do today. I mean, you know, like when we, you and I, Jason, if we see a homeless person on the street, I mean, we're probably going to feel for that person. Absolutely. You know, if, yeah, even if we could help that person or not, we're going to feel for that person. Whereas in pagan Rome, I mean, if you were to walk by a person begging on the street, I mean, you're liable to just, you know, kick them in the teeth for bothering you and nobody, and you know, the, the guards will probably arrest the homeless dude and, you know, just kick him out of the city. Very so, status oriented back then in that Very respect. status. Yes, yes. Couldn't have said it better myself. Let me ask you about the mystery of the sacred feminine. Uh, tell sure. us a about that. Sure. So the mystery of the sacred feminine, um, this is another very, very, very deep, deep psychedelic mystery. And this has to do, this has to, this goes so far back in our ancestry that I believe it actually originated in Africa when we were all still Africans in Northern Africa. And, um, what happened was, so uh, this is, might sound a little odd, but please bear with me. We're going to go on a journey. Okay. Um, we today take for granted where babies come from, procreation. We take for granted the fact that, you know, when a woman and a man copulate, if, you know, all goes according to plan and they're trying to have a kid, nine months later, that kid will come out, hopefully a healthy baby. Well, at what point, and I started to ask myself this question, at what point did we actually discover that? I mean, if you think about it, there, after intercourse, there are no signs of pregnancy for a long time. How, do, how and when did we finally determine that sexual intercourse actually leads to children? Well, that brings us to the mystery of the sacred feminine. People had no idea. Women by and large, were just growing small people inside of their bellies. And nobody knew why this was. So women, this goes back to a time when women were revered and it was that we were, we had more matrifocal societies and you had more the men on the outskirts protecting the women, you know, in the middle, making sure that, that their bodies, their divine wombs and their divine bodies were kept safe. So now what happens is, and I write about this in the book, and it's a little confusing, so I'll try my best uh, to, to do it in five minutes or less. But once our, there's about 3,000 of us, that at least that, that's uh, the, the going number as far as um, um, when we were all African fleeing the African plains. So it was about 3,000, no more uh, than that, that left the African plains. Some of them went east and founded the rites of Inanna. Others went west and founded the rites of Eleusis in Greece. Now, at some point along the way, heading east, people, de people discovered that the man's role in procreation, which is why with the rites of Inanna in Uruk and in Sumer, you have uh, Demuz, the male counterpart in the sacred marriage. He has to take Inanna's place when she rises from the dead, right? So it's like this cyclical thing. Well, over in Greece, there is no hint of the sacred masculine at all. All the main characters are women until centuries later when they kind of just butchered Dionysus into the story. So what happened was you have this first matrifocal religion beginning in Africa 
they split off. The Greek side retains the original matrifocal um, uh, vision of this rite, at least for a while, until again Dionysus makes his way into the later rites. And in the East, you have that discovery of the male's role, and here you have the male counterpart from the get-go involved in the sacred rites. So the mystery of the sacred feminine was the mystery, in short, of the the, the miracle of the female body. Uh, to quote uh, the comedian Jim Gaffigan, he says, you know, women, you know, can, you know, will grow a baby in their body, and then they can deliver that baby through their body and then feed that baby through their body, you know, with breast milk. It's like when you think of the male contribution to life, it's really not all that much. So it's very easy to have been overlooked in the ancient world. You know, that's a great point when you think about the value of motherhood in terms of procreation and how important of a role that is. Yet male dominated society doesn't appreciate it the way they should. Based on you know even ancient times, it's 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 interesting. Well, they, yeah, it's a shame because you could actually see the takeover of the sacred feminine with the introduction of Dionysus into these rites. It was like, oh, okay, it's guys. Oh, so they said, oh shoot, look, like we we kind of want to be involved in this now, and so they kind of just overtook the rites. And if you go to um uh, the British Museum, I mean, you could see the artifacts of this. I mean, the earlier the earlier artifacts from Eleusis are all just show women, and all the later stuff show women with men, specifically Dionysus. When you mention the British Museum, I think back. I've been there four times. When I go to every nice. time I go to England in the in the past, I make that place my favorite stop. Uh, I love it there. It's one of the yeah, best museums too. in the world. It's um, a great place to orgasm. Absolutely. <laughs> Let's talk about psychedelic magic in ancient Greece and Rome. And I know you've sure. touched on this a little bit already, but I just want to kind of go into how your book discusses this period and uh, period of time and how it was received by the Greeks and the Romans. Sure. So uh, people used uh, psychedelics for every kind of magical practice that we know about in the ancient world and probably some that we don't know anything about. Um, those things would be things like um, erotic magic or love magic or sex magic, whatever we want to call it. How that worked was... Uh, people would make what were called pokalamatori in the Latin or filtron in the Greek, which just means a love potion or a love filter. We today would call it ecstasy. Okay. If we were to adjust for modern parlance, that's what we would call it. Uh, these were these were um, magical brews that had things like you know, mandrake was very popular, uh, cannabis, maybe mushrooms would be in there, and they would. Um, uh, along with other things like menstrual blood and like the hair of a female donkey and, you know, <laughs> other stuff like that. And, you know, I have a newt or whatever. But um, what, what the the idea was in the same way, I mean, when you give, you know, substance and, you know, then uh, engage in nocturnal Congress, it could be very addicting. So what was going on here is that um, people would give these um, these uh, these uh, psychedelic uh, brews to people. Uh, that the object of their affection and they would become essentially addicted to their supplier So they'd want to be around that person more because that person could get them, you know For lack of a better term or lack of a better uh, statement their drug of choice quote-unquote So sex magic was one way uh, another way you had was with um, um, Very lethal forms of magic. Uh, there was a, a lady a priestess of the uh, the school of Hecate Who ended up being tapped to be the general of an army for the uh, Athenian state? So she was, was a woman who was in charge of the Athenian armies. Um, uh, she was tapped by a certain King Nopus. He was trying to destroy the last Ionian stronghold in Eritrea. And so Chrysami was brilliant. And because she was a, um, a priestess of the school of Hecate, she was well versed in all things psychoactive. And this is, you know, this is borne out by the records. We know that if you were priestess in the school of Hecate, part of your training was in psychoactive herbs and medicines. So what she did, uh, Chrysami did, was um, she walked out bravely to the middle of the battlefield towards the enemy line. And she had a bull brought to her that she was going to sacrifice in honor of the Athenian gods for her side. But what happened was she ended up before that feeding the bull some kind of psychoactive, most likely a mushroom, something to like drive it nuts. And so when the bull was brought out of the stall, it was going crazy. And so it broke 
three from from Krisemi and ran into the enemy camp. And the enemies all laughed at Krisemi, saying, oh, look, you put a woman, you know, in front of your in, in charge of your armies. Look what happens. But that's exactly what she wanted. So what the the, the soldiers of Eritrea did was they sacrificed the bull and sacrificial meat, uh, meat was always eaten. So you'd share with the gods that meal. And whatever she fed the bull again most likely a mushroom because it transferred from the bull to the soldiers so when she saw the soldiers started stumbling around she ordered the athenian troops into the camp and they slaughtered everybody so that would be a form of lethal psychedelic magic uh to kind of win a war actually um then you also have other things like um divination and prophecy in the ancient world where um pliny talks about this other authors talk about this in short, you would just have like uh, Persian, Persian magi and, and other forms of magi, but Persians were known to use cannabis. Uh, they would heat up the cannabis and just prophecy based off their visions. And they would do this with anything, opium, uh, mushrooms at times, you know, whatever they had available. Uh, you also had things I, I talked about, um, you know, lethal psychedelic magic. I want to talk about non-lethal psychedelic magic real quick because this is pretty cool. So one of the ways people got back at their enemies was by dosing them driving them nuts. And we only have fragments from the ancient world that testify to this. Um, You know, people saying that, you know, somebody gave me this and it drove me nuts. Uh, But we have a clear evidence of it in medieval times with medieval wise women. And so just to give a a clear example of what this looks like, there's a wise woman living in the early 1400s in Todi, Italy, named Matteucci de Francesca La Striga de Castorrepe Bianca. And what she would do is she would sell an herb Uh, some kind of psychoactive herb, we don't know what it was, and an incantation to abused housewives. And these abused housewives would slip this drug, whatever it was, into their abusive husband's meal. They'd wait about 45 minutes to an hour, you know, just when their husband started to sweat a little bit. But before the hallucinations kicked in, the, the wife would start saying the incantation over her husband as he's cowering in the corner, you know, like well, the, having, you know, uh, visions of demons over him. And what happened is he would think that her incantation was actually causing the physiological and psychological reactions. And so that any time she said this incantation, it would cause this in him, and it, 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 uh, the result being that many abusive husbands behave themselves later in life. That's interesting. That's really interesting. Utilizing the substance and trying to manipulate the recipient of that substance yes. in order to gain yeah. an upper hand and prevent the abuse. Yeah, and we have some examples uh, from literature as well. Medea does that. Does that uh, in in one talk? Uh, one talk, excuse me. In uh, one episode, uh, when uh, when she's with Jason and the Argonauts. Uh, and again, uh, it, it's totally literary. But um, scholars and uh, and I consider myself one of them do agree that even the literature on witches, like the literary stuff, was all drawn from actual practices in ancient Greece and Rome. Wow. So when you're reading even plays like ancient Greek plays or ancient Roman dramas about magic or religion, you can rest assured that that was something, you know, I'm sure they exaggerated for stage effects, but more or less that is what people were using these substances for in the ancient world. That's interesting. I want to talk about psychedelic mystery traditions in ancient Christianity. Kind of sure. Shift okay. gears a little bit. Sure. Tell us about that uh, and what you found. Sure. So the... This is a pretty big topic, so I don't. I hope you don't mind if I don't chew your ear for about a five minutes straight. No problem. Or so. No problem. No problem. So, first thing we have to do is discuss where there aren't psychedelics in ancient and medieval Christianity, and that has to do with I don't know if you've ever heard of or you're familiar with the holy mushroom theory. I have not. Okay, so the holy mushroom theory is this idea that Christians throughout the ages have secretly painted uh, mushrooms into their art to show that eating mushrooms is the way to the Christian Godhead. Uh, there have been some books on this. Actually, uh, my friend Jerry Brown wrote the Psychedelic Gospels. I'm going to be doing a, uh, a podcast interview or debate with, with him tomorrow with Psychedelic Milk. Uh, his is probably the best, not probably, his is the best book on the topic. I obviously have my problems with it, um, but um, 
so there's the small cadre of scholars that think that uh, there are uh, mushrooms painted in art. Now, I've gone through these images, and if your listeners are aware of this uh, idea, this hypothesis, and want to go to psychedelicwitch.com, my website, they can check out my articles on this. And I, you know, I randomly debunk a lot of the images that they say are mushrooms. They're not. So there are no mushrooms in Christian art. What we do have, however, is a uh, we have three Christian traditions for using psychedelics that I was able to detect from the records. Again, dealing with fragments, dealing with documents, or you know, not the lost ones. I didn't have access to the lost ones, but you know, they do reference documents that we no longer have. So we, you know, you have to do, you have to fill in some of the gaps. But even without filling in some gaps, there were three very noticeable psychedelic traditions uh, in ancient and medieval Christianity. Um, the first has to do with a somnotheogenic kind, which again is the somnotheogenic experience is falling into a dream uh, state and uh, communicating with the goddesses and gods in that dream state. Um, while it has been believed by some that uh, today that Christians have traditionally been teetotalers and, you know, avoided, you know, the booze and the psychoactive, nothing is further from the truth. There was no war against drugs in the ancient world, so people used them openly, and they wrote about them. And one of the ways Christians used them in the somnotheogenic way was to knock yourself into what they called an oblivion in Christ. So if you felt like if you were like a church leader and you felt like the vices of life were becoming too much for you, like maybe, you know, you want to go take your pants off with a nun or you want to go to the pub and have a drink or you want to go gamble or something. Uh, what the church father said was, no, what you should do is take the strong draft of mandrake and that'll knock you into this oblivion in Christ. They would call it the sleep of heavenly contemplation and sometimes. And you'd meet with Jesus and he'd heal you and he'd tell you, you know, oh, you don't need, you know, wine, women and song, you know, it is through me that you will reach salvation. Uh, other times there was a guy named Theodoret who was a, a bishop of Syria who was of the, uh, in the fifth century, who was fond of smoking opium and then reading the Bible. So we know that he was down with all this stuff as well. Um, so getting back to the somnotheogenic thing, that's one way Christians, uh, use this stuff is in the somnotheogenic way. Uh, another way that they use it was what we would call, um, spirited recreation. Like when we all get together at, you know, Easter, Thanksgiving, Christmas, Halloween, New Year's, our holidays, and, you know, we're, we're having our, our beers and our wines and we're smoking our joints and some of us are eating mushrooms. Well, Christians have been doing that for centuries and uh, they mostly adopted them from the Roman Saturnalia, which was a, you know, a celebratory uh, uh, um, occasion that took place in Rome from uh, December 27th to the 23rd. It's a really great week uh, to be a lot, to be a Roman citizen. And actually that's also where the idea of doing unto others, doing unto the least among you um, in the, the, the Christian uh, um frame actually comes from Saturnalia. During Saturnalia, slaves would serve, uh, excuse me, masters would serve their slaves. So the roles would be reversed. And um, uh, Lucian of Samosata makes uh, reference to the ecstasy drinks or the pocolamatoria, again, the love filters that were passed around during the, uh, the meals, the dinnertime meals during the Saturnalia. So Christians adopted all of that. They also took some traditions, I'm sure your listeners are no doubt aware, from the Yule celebrations. Well, some of those Yule celebrations did include brewing some highly psychedelic beers using things like henbane, um, probably Amanita muscaria mushrooms as well. We're not exactly sure, but um, so Christians took from that as well. So that's the second tradition uh, they took was just um, intoxicated revelry. Now, the third one that they, uh, uh, Christians used, and this is actually kind of disconcerting, was they were using psychedelics as a way to erase pagan thoughts in people. So in the 1940s and 50s in our country, the CIA was trying to use LSD and magic mushrooms to kind of like brainwash people. Well, as it turns out, uh, during medieval times, and especially during the, uh, the witch trials of the um, uh, 15th and 16th centuries, they would drug women who were under torture, and um, that would kind of make them confess you know, because they, they would give women some kind of powerful psychedelic. And these are women that were, you know, they were just regular people. They weren't wise women. They were just somebody whose name got dropped. And now they were brought in to be inquested. So they would feed her this draft of, you know, probably mushrooms or something. And she'd start having, you know, the, these horrific 
you know, uh, visions in this, um, you know, in a torture chamber. I mean, talk about a bad trip and end up confessing, you know, all of her spiritual sins. And the priest would, you know, once she was, you know, under the influence of these things, the, the inquisitors would bring the priest in and say, look, she's crazy. See, the devil's got her. We got to execute her. And then in, um, in other areas, uh, like Hildegard of Bingen, um, you know, she tried to, she pretty much rewrote pagan prescriptions for the use of mandrake with a Christian bend in her uh, physica. And I, I write about that as well in the book. So those would be the three Christian, or the three ways ancient and medieval Christians, at least so far as I can tell, used these, uh, these uh, plants. That's really interesting. Fungi. Very interesting. The, the various approaches to that is very interesting to me. Here, yeah, it's... Here. To, to yeah. elicit a confession, uh, to control uh, a battering spouse and husband, and to to control urges, if you're a member yeah. of the clergy. That's very yeah. interesting. Man. Yeah, we have to remember again that they did not they did not classify substances. Like today we have a drug scheduling, like schedule one, two, three, whatever. They didn't do that in the ancient world they didn't have drug scheduling what they did schedule was magic <laughs> so it always depended on what you were doing with it i mean again you could if you used cannabis to heal somebody and said um uh, 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 here's a perfect example so a guy named macarius who is a uh, a russian orthodox preacher according to his biographer john of aleppo would light up cannabis in uh before his congregations and get everybody high, you know, and then he would get into, you know, then get into his sermon. Whereas we also know in the first century that that uh, priestesses of Hera were also using cannabis in their rites to Hera. Now, in a Christian perspective, one of those, i.e. Macarius, was perfectly fine. And the other, the worshippers of Hera was, I mean, that'll get you killed. That's interesting. Let's talk about psychedelics and during the Renaissance period. Wow, well, there's a lot there. <laughs> There's a lot there. So uh, psychedelics in the Renaissance period, the first thing we'd need to do is separate between what learned practitioners and ceremonial magicians were doing with psychedelics and what wise women like village shamanesses were doing with uh, these psychedelics. So beginning with um, what the ceremonial magicians were doing, and again, if your listeners are interested in this topic, Chris Bennett's Libra 420, it just came out actually on 420 of uh, this year is the definitive topic on uh, on that subject. Um, or excuse me, is the definitive book on that subject. And um, so what ceremonial magicians, I mean, they would get into things like scrying and um, demon invocation and alchemy and astrology. And now none of that is borne out in the cases of the wise women and the shamanists and the, in the, you know, the local healers in the village because they were largely illiterate. Things like alchemy, things like astrology, those are all learned, you know, practices, learned magic. So in um, the book, uh, the probably the most influential uh, magical text to hit the medieval uh, Renaissance magical scene, or um, I should say medieval uh, uh, medieval magical scene, was uh, it was called Picatrix. And there, I mean, they have uh, recipes for using opium and henbane and cannabis in magic and in astrology. And it even says that over in India, they use this for everything, like all their magical practices. So you have that on one side. You have the learned magicians doing this stuff. And then you have the village wise woman, which was is my kind of area of expertise. That's what my first book, The Witch's Ointment, is all about. It's, uh, it shows what the actual, well, at least I tried to my best of my ability to reconstruct the actual folk religions of these wise women, show how the entheogens fit in. And how the church demonized them because they weren't worshiping Jesus with their entheogens. They were worshiping fertility goddesses with their entheogens. So these women, um, the, the most popular form of taking this was in an ointment. And this ointment was either rubbed on the flesh or in their vaginas. And they would fall into this deep trance uh, under the awesome power of these ointments and enter the um, the spirit world or the realm of the dead, like your friend entered, and they would join in procession with the dead. Now, they couldn't do this in human form. So one of the um, more interesting things about these women's religion was that they first had to transform either into zombie or corpse versions of themselves or into animals, because living humans could not enter the spirit world. And choices of animals were things like foxes, horses, donkeys, things like that. That's how they would enter the spirit world. And 
as far as uh, other uses, not just entheogenic, I mean, they use these substances for everything. I, I had mentioned before Matucha de Francesco, who would uh, sell abused housewives that, that, um, that you know, the, the, the psych- psychedelic herb and the incantation. She was one of those people. I mean, she would r- use these same herbs on herself to enter the spirit world. So, again, it really says something about dose set and setting during this time, because she's using the same uh, substances on herself and having an entheogenic and spiritual experience, whereas she's selling those same herbs to women to drive their abusive husbands nuts. That's and that in, yeah, I mean, but that is, that's what occultism really means. It's knowing the secret virtues of things, you know? So those are just, yeah, so those are just some of the ways uh, people use them. Um, they'd also do it for prophecy as well. I mean, there's this one case I have in the Witches' Ointment where uh, uh, this woman named uh, Lechio Frahelmben, who was a Styrian sorceress, uh, she, um, we don't know if she took the henbane or if she gave her client the henbane, but some client came to her looking for a lost ox, and they used the henbane, like the trance that henbane you know, will put you under, to locate where the ox was. And we don't know if they were successful or not, but you know, again, it, it was just a more of a continuation of the practices in ancient Greece and Rome. Did you, in terms of looking at this from a historical perspective, I know you have your degree in history, did you go to primary sources to gather this information? How did you accumulate the historical aspects of this? Because I, I wouldn't see it be very easy to just uncover it right away. You had to go to something. Where did you gain your knowledge? Oh, yeah. yeah, all primary sources. So, uh, again, this goes back to the witch's ointment because psychedelic mystery traditions grew out of the witch's ointment. Um, I did 10 years of archival research for the witch's ointment. So, um you know, that's that that's all in there. Um, yeah, I just went straight to the sources. Um, in fact, uh, let me see if I could pull this up real fast. If um, some of your listeners are interested, uh, these are just uh, a handful of some of the sources that they could check out for themselves. Um, Virgil, Ecologues, Pliny, Natural History, Aetius of Amidia, Libra Medicinalis, Statius Thebod, Theodorus of Sicily, the Library of, His- uh, Library of History, Dioscorides, Pharmacon, Simplicum, Plutarch, Theocritus, the Greek Magical Papyri, Polyanus, Apollodorus, Plutarch, um, and that's just the ancient world. In the medieval world, you have Bernardino of Siena, Alonso Tostado, Johann Nitter, Giambattista Giam uh, della Porta, uh, Cordano, Johann Weyer, Abraham of Lawrence, Andres Laguna, Henry Boguet, Nicholas Fermi, Francesco Guazzo. These are all the primary sources that taught, and not even all of them. I mean, this is just a, 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 you know, a small sample of the primary sources that discuss psychedelics in the ancient and medieval worlds. Well, interestingly enough, I also noticed in your book at the end, you have, it looks like a catalog of the sources you've referenced for your oh, book, yeah. your bibliography. Oh, yeah, so anyone oh, yeah. who's interested, look at these sources, can go to your book and yeah review it as a review of the book itself. Yeah, I also have the uh, the original languages, uh, especially in the witch's ointment. Uh, didn't come up so much in uh, psychedelic mystery traditions because a lot of the stuff has been translated into English. But with the witch's ointment, I mean, they want to check themselves. Uh, the Old Latin, Italian, Spanish, German, and French are all in the notes, uh, all the original texts themselves. So, That's so if somebody wants to say that they weren't using psychedelics, what <laughs> I say to them is, Okay, how do you translate this passage? Sure. It's it's kind of like glossed over by history, <laughs> I think. Uh, and it yeah, needs to be more incorporated. Yeah, but that's that's becoming uh, more of the vogue, Jason. I mean, as, as we're discovering more and more, you know, just how predominant these plants were in the ancient world. So that's that's changing. And, you know, I would agree with you up to a few years ago, it's been largely written out, but... Um, you know, there's a couple of us out there. Uh, Danny Nemo's one. I mentioned Chris Bennett a few times. Uh, Mike Crowley and, you know, dare I say myself as well. You know, we're really trying to get this story out there. I, I enjoy the fact that you've made this an academic endeavor as well as like, chronolize, you know, cr- creating a chronology of it and then also expounding on it, which is very interesting for me. I want to ask yeah. you about what you termed the psychedelic, psychedelic renaissance and explain that to our audience. Sure. Well, we're in it. (laughs) The psychedelic renaissance is the time period that you are currently living in today. It's when, um, so we're getting, there's, there's more acceptance of things like cannabis. I believe it's legal now in 13 states. The FDA just approved, um, 
some trial studies for psilocybin mushrooms to treat PTSD and depression. Up in Canada, uh, MDMA is, I think, they were in phase two testing. They might be in phase three testing now, which is, these are all good signs. So all of that, and plus with, you know, historians like Chris Bennett, uh, Crowley, Nemu, uh, Cody Nakoni, again, dare I say myself, you know, really coming out with the history. And then you got guys like Martin Ball, you know, who's just coming straight out and saying, hey, you know, 5-MeO-DMT, and he's got like 20 books on, you know, a 5-MeO-DMT. And there's just this wealth of literature coming out to demonstrate that, you know, psychedelics have been here since, you know, prehistory. They're here now. They're going to be in the future. They're not going anywhere. So we, we need to come up with the best policies and practices and and just ignoring them and you know trying to say oh you know that that's old hat in the dustbin of history that's not going to work the people are not being fooled anymore i mean i'm sure you're seen as well as i have people are waking up <laughs> these days in ways that they never have before and i think that that as well is contributing if not directly even indirectly to the psychedelic renaissance it's just people becoming more aware and that's what psychedelia is all about so if you you know, if you don't take psychedelics or, you know, you have an awareness about you and you don't need them, that's great. You know, like we're all on the same team here. But, um, you know, that's really, I think, what the psychedelic renaissance is all about. It's just people getting tired of and saying, no, I mean, there were there are mothers and fathers right now sitting in prison, you know, for smoking an herb, you know, cannabis while their kids are in foster care. How is that great for America? Correct. It's not. Yeah. You know, people are realizing that. And I think in um in Washington, um, uh, I haven't looked too deeply into it. And, you know, the way news stories are these days, you have to really dig. But I saw an article and I'm going to uh, check it out that uh, um, said that in um, in Washington now they're going back 30 years and they're expunging all cannabis crimes because it's just ridiculous it, it you is. know to hold somebody like it's the, you know and the thing is people even people that don't smoke cannabis i mean i have friends that don't smoke cannabis not many but a few that don't and they're even like yeah putting somebody in prison for cannabis is the stupidest goddamn thing like yeah. it's just it doesn't make sense it doesn't make social science sense putting things like cannabis and mushrooms as a schedule one drug is the stupidest thing i mean it's just idiotic do you and so that's the psychedelic renaissance. Sorry, it's just the oh, no. general recognition that this is one part of our life, a part of the human story, and two, that you are throwing people in prison for it being part of the human story is ridiculous. It's that it's Sorry. that it's that argument when the government overreaches and goes too far and trying to control individuals' personal behavior in the confines of their own privacy, for example, where they overregulate yeah. and do that. I wanted to yeah. I wanted to ask you. The movement now is legalization of marijuana. As you saw, mm -hmm. Canada just legalized it as a country. Yes. Uruguay did that before. We have 13 mm -hmm. states that have, rec I think it's recreational, and then medical marijuana, yeah. medicinal marijuana, just like in Florida, two years ago became legal. And now there's, yeah. like, there's a movement to, to change that whole dynamic. And uh, yeah. my question is, as marijuana or cannabis becomes legalized, do you think in the future society's views on psychedelic substances are going to change as well. Yeah, and it's, it's already happening. I mean, uh, I'm part of a ballot initiative here. Um, we're trying to get psilocybin um, legalized in uh, 2020 in Oregon. And I know that in uh, California, they're doing the same thing. And in Colorado, they're doing the same thing. And I think what it is is um, people still have in their head psychedelic, like the psychedelic 60s, which was actually a, a departure from the global history of how people have used psychedelics. Um, so what we're trying to show is that, look, th these, these can be enjoyed by responsible adults every bit as much as alcohol can be enjoyed by a responsible adult. And that, you know, when you're, when you blame the substance, you're not, you're not helping society at all. You're just, you're the, the wrong people go to prison and it's just, it's absurd. I, I think what, you just said has very strong weight in terms of how society needs to alter its viewpoints in the yes. treatment of those who do decide to utilize these things when it doesn't cause harm to others. Um, yeah. And, and they don't, and uh, they, they don't even cause, cause harm to you. I mean, mushrooms with all due respect, I mean, your body goes through more physiological stress if you run around the block three times sure. than it does if you eat psilocybin mushrooms. I mean, they're, they're, 
they're very safe in that regard. I mean, not if you have a heart condition or you have a family history of mental illness, but if, if you're a regular average person, then no, these things are safe. I mean, they really are. Just don't take too much and don't do something stupid. But, you know, if you're with some friends in your living room and eat some mushrooms, you know, you're you're fine. You know, probably the chance of something happening are very slim, especially when you compare it to the opioid crisis that we're going through as a society. Right yes. Now. Yeah. And that's the thing is that mushrooms and uh, cannabis are, are really, you know, they could easily replace opioids. And it's like, why aren't we doing this? Well, because then you have the whole pharmaceutical problem gets involved. And it's like, you know, we just... I hate to say it, but every now and then, you know, you feel like you just got to really tear the whole thing down and restart. Hit but the reset button. A, <laughs> yeah, but that's a, you know, that, that's not a realistic, you know, uh, um, you know, uh, protocol at all, unfortunately. But, um, you know, it's it just we're doing it the right way. And the good news is this, Jason, and to all your listeners, 100 percent of the science is on our side. All of it. There is no science saying that these things hurt you or damage you in any way. And the few things that were, you know, like from the the uh, the, the Nixon years have all been debunked as total nonsense. So I don't know. Smoke them if you got them. <laughs> I want to thank you for coming on the show. This has been a very interesting episode for me. Uh, one of my goals with this podcast is to explore areas that aren't usually talked about, get people to expand their viewpoints and hopefully create greater acceptance and understanding of these topics. And I, I really like your topic. I like the fact that you're passionate about this. I could tell while you're discussing it. And I encourage my audience, if they're interested in this area, to definitely pick up your book, Psychedelic Mystery Traditions. Where would they go to get your book? Would it be Amazon or what would you, your, your website? My website's a good place. Uh, most bookstores should have, uh, major bookstores would have it. Um, and some, um, um, some Wiccan and Pagan bookstores will have them if you're in an area with a Pagan and Wiccan bookstore. Um, but psychedelicwitch.com is uh, – all three of my books are available there. Of course, Amazon as well. Um, but um, I offer deals on my webpage. Like you can get all three of my books at a discounted rate if you'd like. Um, or just drop me a line. Uh, there's some videos. There's articles. Some fun stuff to check out. I uh, really appreciate you coming on, and if you do any future books beyond this, I would be happy to have you back on and discuss this topic further, or any other topics regarding this larger area that I find very intriguing. Sure. Well, if you'd like, I could uh, I could send you a copy of Microdosing Magic. And, sure. Uh, Absolutely. Okay. I'd be happy to do that. Okay. Cool. Great. Great. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on, and uh, I look forward to uh, having you on again. Yeah, look forward to it too, Jason. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Tom. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Social Psychic Radio Show. Don't forget to join us for another episode next time. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give us a review on iTunes. You can also check us out on Facebook. And don't forget to visit the Social Psychic YouTube channel. Until next time, it's a big world out there. Keep an open mind. Embrace your paradigms and know that the universe is always yours to explore. With the Baker's Plus card, it's easy to get lower than low prices for the win. Earn fuel points on every purchase and save up to a dollar a gallon at the pump. The Baker's Plus card. All you do is win. Big, big savings. Sign up now at bakersplus.com and start saving. Baker's. Fresh for everyone. Savings may vary by state. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your favorites with the buy five or more, save a dollar each sale. Simply buy five or more participating items and save a dollar each with your card. Bakers, fresh for everyone. Hey, it's Tim from 50 Years of Music with 50-Year-Old White Guys, the comedy podcast you had no idea you needed. Join Ben, Jeff, and me as we continue our musical road trip back through the years and around the globe. See, just when you thought all white guys were like Joe Rogan, you come across three educators trying to remember when we were cool. 50 years of music with 50-year-old white guys. Electric acid. 
ever thought about starting your own podcast? Do you have a business or a message you want to share with the world? Well, now it's easier than ever with Electricast. Hi, I'm Mark Netter. And I'm Peter Rafelson. We're the founders of Electricast Media. Whether you want to start a new podcast or already have one, join Electricast to grow your audience, monetize your content, and build your community. With our simple sign-up, you get free promotion, world-class analytics, premium ads, and personal support. Go to Electricast.com and join our community today. Electricast. Transform your influence. Electricast. Electricast.